Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Friday, August 14th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Managing Editor, Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Huaytran Bowie. Hey, everyone. So Chris Evangelista could not make it here today. We were having some technical difficulties, so he decided to sit this one out. And we will, we will, we will, we will forge forward without him. Uh, he will be lucky because he won't have to hear the, you know, the insults from the, from from that book of insults. So he, I guess he's the only winner here, right? No, I think all of you get to bask in the glow of each other's company. So I don't. I think Chris is missing out. Okay, uh, let's dive into it. Let's talk about what we've been doing. Uh, honestly, you're not going to hear a lot from me on this week's Water Cooler podcast because I've been very busy. I've been working on that Patreon that I talked about last week. Uh, we launched a Patreon for Ordinary Adventures to help us self-sustain that uh, that venture. And uh, we got a lot more response to that than we were expecting. I, last night, we hit 800 Patreons. Um when we first started this, I'm not sure if I said this last week, but we had this intention on um, recording personalized video messages and sending them to every, each and every Patreon that backed us. Uh, so that means like us, you know, standing in front of our iPhone and recording, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, uh, you know, thanking the person by name and, you know, a, a very personalized, heartfelt message. Uh <laughs> We are so behind. We have done 400 of those. It t- turns out that's a lot more work than we thought it was going to be. And, and also, we got a lot more Patreons than we, than we thought we were new. Uh, I am not complaining at all. The, I, I, we, we fully intend on, I think, getting through the rest of these this weekend. Um, but in uh, the response to that has been great. Like it, it's really cool to be able to connect to. These people that are, uh, you know, fans of the work and on a more personal, like one to one level, which is cool. And already, like, 
uh, you know, I, I, I won't try to talk too much about this Patreon in the future, but um, it's really cool because YouTube, like everything else in this world, you know, it's all about, you know, clicks and views. And uh, it's, you know, it's just like, you know, you know, we're in the movie world and, you know, it seems like any movie that isn't a tentpole is really not, it doesn't have a future in a big screen experience. And it really makes you, when you're creating content of any kind, I guess this isn't just limited to YouTube, it really makes you consider what you're going to cover, you know, what kind of, what is your approach? What, is there any clickability there? Is there, is there a hook? Is there, um, you know, like you're really considering a lot and then you decide not to do a lot of things based on the idea that like, oh, this might not be a thing that a lot of people might be interested in and the cool thing about patreon and now that like you know uh, we have a lot of patreon backers and that that's going to be the uh, primary source of the income of that of the ordinary adventures channel it means that we honestly don't have to worry about that anymore and it, we're, we're creating content for ourselves and for those patreons and not having to like you know every video be about star wars or <laughs> whatever not that i don't like star wars you know i you know you guys know i love star wars but like it's like you know we did this bonus episode for patreons we're doing a bonus episode every month and the bonus episode was literally our sunday trip to target and walmart and to outback steakhouse so like that's something we would have never done before on the public cha- uh, channel because we would have worried about you know people aren't going to want to click on this and then like there's also the other thing with youtube and their algorithm that like if you your content if if you clicked on our content before then our content will be recommended to you in the future but if enough of our content has been recommended to you that you did not click decide to click on so if like you know that if we had that walmart video or whatever and you didn't click on it then there's a chance that next time around that we publish a video that you won't get recommended our stuff so so there is like it's not just like um it's not the same problem as like slashfilm.com if we publish like an article about something that people don't care about and they just scroll by uh, it's not the same kind of problem because that doesn't mean that they're not going to get suggested the other stories in the future, if that makes sense. Uh, YouTube's its own thing. So a- anyways, I've gone way overboard on this, but uh, it- it's been really fulfilling so far. We're, we're really happy with this. And uh, that's really been my week has been uh, working on this and uh, making contact with all the Patreons and um and, uh, you know, we, it, there's, it's, it's a cool community. We have like 800 people and we have like discussions and we have these uh, like a, almost basically like a message board in there and stuff. It, so, it's really cool. So, Peter, when are we starting a Patreon for Slash Film so we can do a <laughs> multimedia series on Penn and Teller's Fool Us? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if anybody wants to back that. Uh, <laughs> although I will say, HD, one of the Patreons that I back is a Patreon for a podcast that is primarily based on Fula. Oh, so it's, that, yeah. Sorry, I just, I don't know how you do a whole <laughs> podcast about that. Yeah, it's uh, someone that works on the show and they go show by show giving the behind the scenes and talking about, yeah, so okay. I actually pay money for something. I know you made a joke, but I literally pay money for something like that. So, so there you have it. Um, anyways, um. Okay, yeah, that's what I've been doing this week. Uh, J- Jacob, what have you you've been up to? 
I have been talking about uh, physical fitness in a few months now, but uh, I've been keeping it up ever since, you know, I've talked about it previously on this podcast and my diet itself has kind of turned the mush <laughs> during the quarantine, but I do exercise every single day, two hours, every single morning, uh, cardio and uh, weightlifting. And especially during uh, quarantine, I decided I was going to double down on uh, strength training and figuring out, you know, how to uh, change the shape of my body using <laughs> heavy metal objects. And it's been very rewarding. I think one of the key things I did was I started researching, you know, okay, if I'm doing this to my arms, you know, twice a week, uh, and, and I think they're plateaued, how do I change that? And the answer is you rotate between numerous, numerous different times of exercises, uh, so, uh, all attacking the same muscle from, you know, different angles more or less so your body is you know taken aback when you switch up exercises and you get new results over again uh and it's been really rewarding i've been feeling a lot of soreness uh, all throughout the quarantine uh my arms and shoulders and chest in particular are um very different shapes than they were six months ago so uh, it seems to be working it seems to be working out well and just this past week i decided to try doing deadlifts uh which i've been terrified of for a long time because you do any research online and all the experts say you know improper deadlift can cause you serious back injury and the last thing i need is to you know injure my back in the middle of all this quarantine uh, jacob for yeah. for someone out there i mean not me totally not me that like but someone <laughs> out there that doesn't know what a deadlift is what, what is a deadlift i mean they, you got to explain it to them because they oh, yeah. they probably have no idea and i i mean i know but <laughs> a deadlift so what a deadlift is, is you have a barbell on the ground, although all your weight you want to do, and you uh, have it essentially up against your sh the lower part of your shins or your ankles, and you enter a squat position uh, with your back sort of arched up and your head facing forward. Uh, if you sort of, if you bend over entirely, so you're like looking at your feet or at the ground, you can cause yourself serious injury, so you don't do that. <laughs> you grip the uh, barbell at shoulder width, and you stand, uh, but you do not lift with your uh, shoulders or your arms. You leave the squat position so your legs lift you up and lift the weight and then you settle in and it essentially means you um thrust your crotch forward uh instead of like uh so like your legs bring you up and then your uh butt and your crotch thrust forward to have the weight reshift into your shoulders and arms and chest you hold it then you squat back down again into the same position drop to the ground and repeat until you're exhausted uh, if you do this wrong, you can like in injure your neck, injure your back. Uh, but it's very popular, and I'll tell you why. Because in the in the twenty four hours after I did that for the first time, I literally felt every single muscle in my body. I felt my shoulders, I felt my neck, I felt my arms, I felt my chest, I felt my stomach, and I felt my legs. Uh, I've never had an exercise where I was literally sore all over from one single thing. Uh, <laughs> so it's one of those things where, if you're like me and you are pursuing physical fitness uh, during uh, quarantine. I can see why this is popular. It was literally a full body workout. It exhausted my entire body. Uh, I did, I, I did like 15 times, uh, three sets of five. Uh, yeah. And I've been finding physical fitness incredibly rewarding. You know, I could live a healthier lifestyle. I could eat better. Uh, but I feel like this is something I'm finding to be a, a journey. I'm happy I'm on. And the deadlift was something I've been thinking about for months. I'm so scared by the YouTube video saying, do it right. Or you'll, or you'll wreck your body. But you know what? Uh, I did it. And I'm going to do it again at least once a week. So that's my hopefully not too boring if, uh, update on what I'm doing to not be such a fat slob. Once a week. Wow. Okay. Uh, uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Uh, so I was lucky enough to happen upon a Nintendo Switch in the wild. 
which was crazy because they have been sold out everywhere since the pandemic started uh, because people have been video gaming a lot more and have been wanting to get their hands on as many video game systems as they can. And the Switch became a popular one, especially because it's a portable video game system. And there's been a couple of times where I've tried to find one online when they've gone on sale and it just hasn't happened. But I was uh, in Target recently and I just w- ha- walked by the electronic section and did a double take because I saw one switch sitting in their cabinet um and i like double checked to make sure that it wasn't a display box or something like that um and i went went over and got and and the guy was he's like man he's like i'm surprised it lasted as long as it did he's like it's your lucky day so picked it up and uh we also grabbed uh ring fit adventure which is something that jacob had talked about recently on the podcast um my girlfriend and i've been looking to try and be a little bit more active you know um in general and doing something like this at home that's also fun as a game seems like a good idea so we haven't uh dug into it yet because i haven't had time to get the switch hooked up but once we do i'll uh report back on on that and all the fun that we'll be having very cool okay let's move on to what we've been reading jacob what have you been reading this week Uh, i read the last duel by eric yeager this is the book is being adapted into a movie directed by Ridley Scott, written by uh, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, uh, Nicole Hofcenter, and starring uh, Matt Damon, uh, Adam Driver, and Ben Affleck. And this is a really fascinating and also very short read. It's only 200 pages long for what subject material. And the basic gist of the movie and the book is it follows the last uh, essentially court-approved duel in French history, where... Uh, one a knight accused a squire of sexually assaulting his wife and when the courts declared the squire innocent he essentially appealed to the king to the higher courts uh saying i want to fight him to the death uh let, let, let god judge us so if you've seen game of thrones you know uh trial by combat uh, it's very much a real thing and this book recounts the last time there was an official like quote-unquote legal trial by combat in in france and it is a fascinating read especially since medieval records are you know they're big holes in them so sometimes the author uh, has to like break it and say here's what we think we know here's what may have happened in some cases like there's one character who's a lawyer in the story he says he gets meticulous journal of all his court cases that still exist today so we actually fill in everything from his point perspective so it's, it's a really really fun puzzle of you know trying to figure out what is true what isn't uh who uh who was the hero, who was the villain. I feel like at the end of the book, I have a pretty good idea of who was telling the truth or not based on my personal uh, experience. And I feel like uh, Jaeger, the writer, uh, believes something else as well. I, mean, I feel like it kind of leans that way. But it's a really compelling book. And at times, it's weirdly hilarious because we always talk about how medieval times were backwards and how you know there are customs and rules and laws that like are crazy by modern standards. But there are times where this reads like a Coen Brothers movie. It is such... There is such crazy obscene bizarre things happening in this book and even though the the premise here is essentially you know a duel a crazy final duel between these two guys the lead up to it is essentially this deranged courtroom drama where these two guys are going to court and essentially suing each other uh, over this and it's it gets increasingly strange and the amount of detail and prep work that goes into like a formal duel uh there's an entire chapter about how you set up the duel and prepare for it about how how the uh combatants are armed and, you know, how the church and local authorities, you know, establish the rules for it. Uh, I don't know what the movie's going to be like. I feel like my impression of, you know, really Scott directing a medieval, you know, war picture is what it initially sounds like is not accurate based on the material. This is very much a, a comedy of errors 
set in the French legal court system that ends in an incredibly violent fight. Um, but that's the last duel. I'm very curious to see how they adapt this material. It is incredibly entertaining. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. I guess, Jacob, to you again, what have you been watching? Oh, goodness. I I watched the first episode of Star Trek Lower Decks. Uh, it's on YouTube, the first episode. It The whole series will be streaming on uh, CBS All Access alongside all the other new Star Trek shows. And the gist with Lower Decks is that's the second Star Trek animated series after the 1970s series. But it's the first outright comedy Star Trek show. It is set specifically in the Next Generation timeline. It has uh, all the uniforms and ship designs and aesthetic of of that sh- of those shows all the way down to the same font work. Like the graphic design is torn straight from 90s Star Trek in a way that made me super nostalgic. Uh, but the gist is that instead of following, you know, heroic bridge crew, it follows the barely named, barely looked at uh, crew members who do all the odd jobs and all the crappy work that nobody talks about that make that keeps a starship running. Uh, and Mike McMahon, the series creator, he was a, uh, he co-created uh, Solar Opposites and Hulu, and he was a one of the head writers on Rick and Morty. And this show, I found it very, very funny, but I'm also a Star Trek fan. I got a lot of the jokes, a lot of the humor uh, is geared toward people who understand this universe already. So I'm curious what Ben, who watched this, I know you're not as big of a Star Trek as I am. Did it land for you as much as it did for me? I thought this was really, really hilarious. I loved this first episode. Um, I'm, I'm bummed that I loved it, to be honest, because I don't subscribe to CBS All Access. And I'm like, oh, I really, really like this show. And I really want to see like where it goes and and want to see more of this. But I, I don't really have much of an interest in other CBS All Access programming, like enough to justify a subscription just for the single show. So I'll have to uh, grapple with how I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to move forward there. But yeah, I mean, you know, I know you're a a huge Star Trek guy, Jacob. And for me, like I have seen all of the movies, but that's it. Like I, I don't, and maybe I think I've seen like, you know, a couple episodes of the show. I remember watching one in some class in college, Um, but I've never actually, uh, the original series, I should say. Um, But I've never watched any Next Generation or any of the other stuff. Um, I've, I've, you know, kept my Star Trek, um, uh, curiosity limited just to the movies um so i I don't think this is like a um i don't think there's much of a barrier to entry at the very very end of this first episode they start mentioning all these things that happen in the movies but it's like really quick and it's like it's funny if you understand those references but it goes by so fast that if it completely goes over your head. It's only like 10 seconds of the show that, that you won't understand at all. Um, but they talk about like what happens uh, to Spock in the original, you know, like the search for Spock and like those, the first three Star Trek movies. Um, but yeah, it's just like little quick references here and there. And the rest of it, I thought it was, it did a really, really good job of like just building up um, the world and, and dropping you into this area where like, even if you're just passingly familiar with like some of the iconography of, of Star Trek, if you understand what a bridge is or what it looks like, like, I guess if you've seen galaxy quest and, and that's the extent of your, um, of your, uh, uh, travels into this realm of, of science fiction, I think this show will work for you. It's not like heavy on references. It's, uh, it's a lot of visual stuff. Um, that like, you know, hardcore fans can appreciate, but uh, I I found it to be um, surprisingly and pleasantly self-contained. Yeah. One of the big issues or big in quotation marks is that 
Uh, Star Trek fandom is up in arms <laughs> over this show right now. Really? Uh, Why? People, they seem to hate it. They seem to think it's it's mocking Star Trek and that it hates Star Trek, which is, this show could only have been made by people who deeply, deeply love Star Trek. From the, the writing to the jokes uh, to this, the very aesthetic, the way the show feels is... It's not something made out of hate. It is something that's made so clearly out of love. But the moment I watched the first episode on YouTube, so getting recommendations for like why Star Trek Lower Decks uh, is is an affront to Star Trek, why Star Trek Lower Decks hates Star Trek fans, and it has made me like I've been rewatching a lot of Star Trek recently for a personal project. I've teased a few times here. Hopefully, can announce that officially soon. But Star Trek has never been as smart, as pure, or even as consistently good as fans think it has been. Uh, I say to somebody who loves Star Trek, uh, Star Trek deserves to have the piss taken out of it. <laughs> and Lower Decks is doing it with, with so much affection. And I can say, I would say Star Trek probably deserves to be slapped down a notch every now and then for really big reasons. But instead, here it is uh, with, with, with a comedy show that's not making fun of it as much as it is pointing out the absurdities of this universe and really leaning into that with characters who are aware enough to realize that, Oh, we are on a ship where bad things happen all the time. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I think that's a uh, really fun way to tackle that material. I, I don't think it's hateful at all. I mean, as someone who loves Star Trek, I, I got, it made me feel warm all over. It, it is, it's clearly uh, prepared by people who, who understand the recipe and love the dish. Uh, Do you feel any hate in this, Ben? No, I don't. I really don't. I I wonder how much of that, um, you know, Star Trek has been, uh, like the the history of of Star Trek fandom has been pretty fraught, I think. Like the the popularity of that show has gone in and out. So I wonder if like the the segments of the fandom that are feeling uh, attacked by this show are still stinging a little bit from, you know, periods in their lives where, <laughs> where it's like loving Star Trek was, um, was not nearly as, as cool or socially acceptable as it is right now. I don't want to like paint with too broad of a brush, but, uh, if, if they're calling this show hateful or saying that it's like damaging the legacy of the series or something or the franchise, uh, I just don't, I don't get that at all, at least from this first episode. Yeah. I, I guess my whole thing is I always go back to how people at the time next generation came out in the eighties, the response was not my star Trek. And then enterprise came out and not my star Trek and Star discovery was not my star Trek. And all those shows now have strong followings. So I think in a few years, people will get over this and hopefully yeah. embrace it. Okay. Uh, last week, Chris talked about a movie called an American pickle. This is on HBO max. And I watched it over the weekend. The stars, Seth Rogen and Seth Rogen, uh, it's our Seth Rogen as a simple Jewish uh, immigrant worker who moves, you know, he moves to the United States and he's working at a pickle factory and he accidentally uh, falls into a a barrel of uh, pickles being brined and it's preserved for 100 years. And he wakes up in modern day Brooklyn and is put in the care of his great, great grandson, Ben. Uh, who is a Brooklyn hipster, you know, working on an, you know, an, uh, an app business and stuff like that. And, um, uh, you know, Chris is right. This is very enjoyable that the performance from Seth Rogen in two different roles is, is very, is, is very good performance. Uh, I, I will say as this movie goes on, I'm not sure, uh, I think I like the premise more than I like where it ends up heading. It ends up being this rivalry movie between these two guys that I don't really care about there being a rivalry. I, I kind of wish it was more about 
the premise of this guy like trying to come you know fish out of water trying to come with grips with like you know how the world has changed and you know uh basically who he has become through his avatar of you know his great great grandson um i wish it was more about that it's directed by this guy named brandon trost who uh he was a cinematographer for many years he did a lot of a lot of like horror movies back in the day. He did direct a feature film before called the FP, which was a big hit uh, at fantastic fest or South by one of those two. Um, and he recently, after that, he became the cinematographer for Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. You know, he's been doing like, uh, this is the end neighbors, the interview, uh, the night before neighbors Two, you know, a lot of those. So like, it, it's weird because he used to have like this big horror, like he used to be the horror guy. And now he's like the guy, maybe he's good at like filming uh comedy where you're like doing different lines, take to take and stuff like that. And like, I- I'm sure that's like really hard thing to film. Cause I, I was on the set of this is the, en- this is the end. And you know, every single take was completely different and you have so many multiple cameras and stuff like that. I, I, I assume, you know, being a DP and stuff like that is, is very challenging. Uh, and I assume with this film, it's very challenging because, you know, Seth Rogen is playing two characters in this. He's, you know, playing a character, one with like a, a full beard, which looks real. And then the other, like, did they film the whole movie once and then go back? I, I'm assuming that's like makeup, but it, it looks like a, a real beard there. Um, so anyway, I, I, I would say it's probably worth watching. Uh, Kitra did not as enjoy it as much as me. I, I don't think it quite, uh, you know is a, is a grand slam or anything i i think it where where it heads is not as interesting as where it begins but uh brad you also saw an american pickle i did uh and i think i like this a lot more than you did i actually love this movie because uh it didn't go the route that i was expecting i i think it would have been uh really easy and what i was thinking what this movie might be was a movie where seth rogan um, is, you know, this Jewish immigrant from 100 years ago who has to figure out how to live, you know, in the year 2020 um, and has to acclimate to modern society. And I assume that there would be a lot of, you know, jokes about uh, how silly things are nowadays and how weird stuff is to him. But I'm happy to see that the the story actually focuses on the relationship between the two characters that Seth Rogen plays. Um, who are family members separated, you know, by generations. And I I think there's a lot of heart here. This movie is infinitely more charming and lovely than I anticipated. And even though it has this almost Looney Tunes style aspect to it as they start to be at odds with each other, I I like that the comedy didn't feel like Seth Rogen's usual comedy. This isn't a movie where there's like all these uh, improvised lines where you can tell they did a, you probably did a bunch of alternate takes of the same sequence and we're just spouting off as many jokes as they can this is very much a, a character-based movie um i i, I really like the story and uh, it's i, I def- don't think it's perfect i think um even with a breezy runtime it, it at times it feels like you're there hold, held up a little bit i guess but never to a point where i was like i wasn't necessarily entertained um but yeah i i, I really really like this this movie a lot uh, much more than i anticipated that i would and also, Seth Rogen's beard is real. So, how did they film that? Did they film the entire movie once and then 
go back to the same sets with him shaving off? Like, how does that work? I I mean, I would assume so, since they have to shoot each of them separate anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't read any of up on the production aspect. I just saw in an interview that he said that he actually grew his beard out. Because traditionally, you would light a scene and you'd have the guy, you know, film one part and then go away and into makeup and change in and then film the other part because you have the, the cameras in the exact spots and you have everything set up. I don't know. It just seems like that that would be a production nightmare. To me. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I guess it's worth watching just just for that alone. Uh, okay, uh, let's move on to Jacob. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about Restaurant Impossible, the Food Network show where Chef Robert Irvine goes out and helps failing restaurants. Uh, he's back with a kind of a spinoff season called uh, Restaurant Impossible Back in Business. And the idea is he visits restaurants from the past few seasons who are being uh, hit hard by the coronavirus and helps them uh, create takeout menus, helps them create um, social distancing dining areas, and essentially um, helps them create like... Um, Helps them f- find ways to survive the crisis, and it's one part clip show as they like you know sort of recap the previous episode. Uh, but then it's really interesting in the back half where he'll show up and be like, uh, "Where are you failing? Are people not eating in? People not ordering out?" And he'll you know help them figure out how to you know appeal to diners who either want to come in and, and sit socially distance or or figure out how to build a successful you know uh, to go or delivery service and. Like the core show, it is just this incredibly kind uh, show that even though the main character is known as this brusque, you know, big, intimidating dude, it's ultimately all about kindness and all about uh, and all about taking care of people. And the show bends over backwards to show you it's, it's, a, it's a skeleton crew all wearing masks. Um, he, whenever he talks to the people uh, for, for the, when he comes back to the restaurants, he's always sitting six feet apart from them. Uh, it's really surreal to see the show that clearly came together during the pandemic, uh, but it's also it's you know as someone who misses being able to go out to eat at restaurants I love, it is it's definitely heartwarming <laughs> to see a TV show where somebody's taking an interest in making sure restaurants survive this. Uh, so that's uh, Restaurant Impossible back in business, uh, which is airing on the Food Network right now. And, uh, and Jacob, I, I also also saw the first episode of this. I will say that the the first part of this uh, show where it's like a clip show, he's on his like bus, like looking back at the, the previous episode with that, that restaurateur uh, is not that great. <laughs> like I, I, I feel like I could, you know, that could be like a five minute, you know, lead up to them arriving at the restaurant or something like that. Uh, it, it is interesting. You're like, you mentioned like, like where, where they sit six feet apart from, the the people he's like talking to it's funny because they show like this wide shot of them six uh, sitting six feet apart they take off their mask and then they have the cameras like set up in a way that is like over the shoulder shots that like you could just cut that later on like later on if they like go back or whatever they could use that footage and it look you would never know that it's like six feet away do you know what i mean like they're yeah it's 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 just the how they're producing is is very interesting and it's it's also interesting that it's like uh not so much about uh, making this a safe space, but making it feel like a safe space so that people will want to come in. I yes, I, I don't know. I, I would, I would yeah. like to think that uh, they're actually making it yeah. fully safe. I'm um, fingers crossed because I, I don't want all my favorite restaurants to go out of business. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's uh, that's it's a it's pretty good. But yeah, as Peter said, if you've already seen the previous episode that they're revisiting. You can probably fast forward through the first chunk of it and get to the good stuff in the back half. Uh, but in terms of things that are uh, unequivocally good and great in every possible way, uh, Disney Plus, I watched 
Pixar's Inside Out, uh, which is the best Pixar movie. I, I won't I won't hear any other argument. Uh, I think it is the uh, encapsulation of everything that makes a company great. It is it is as emotional, as funny, and as creative as any mo- American movie made in the past hundred freaking years. Uh, Inside Out is a masterpiece. Uh, fight me, <laughs> or don't fight me because you, you know I'm right. Yeah, it's not my number one, but and you can find my number one on the YouTube video. <laughs> uh, Watcher top ten Pixar. I don't remember the title, but you can find it somewhere. But it is a great movie, and I dislike that it's long been sort of written off by a lot of fans who dislike it or because it's not as, I guess, emotionally um, heart-wrenching, I guess, as other Pixar films. But it's such a good, uh, complex movie. People say that? The movie where the the stakes of the movie are a little girl's emotional well-being, something that we can all relate to? I, I guess for me, like, Toy Story 3, very emotional because I love those characters. They hate toward Incinerator. It's very sad and very frightened for them. But Inside Out's emotional qualities, where it's where the personal stakes are entirely internal and in the in the heart, soul, and mind of a child going through a hard time, I relate to that. I've never fallen toward an incinerator, but I have had rough times as a child. So for me, I, I, Inside Out hits so much harder than any other Pixar movie. HD, you need to point me toward these people who are saying this so I can fight them. <laughs> the internet. Hey, d- d- <laughs> Jacob, I, I love this movie too, but I would say what keeps us away from being in my top one slot or even maybe my top three slot of Pixar is I think aesthetically, like it's very cartoony and not really what I want from a Pixar movie. I don't know. I I, I get what you're saying, but I also feel like it's not really about the girl. It's about the people inside her head. Who are her? They're all, they're all parts yeah. of her. They, they, they are the, they're all, met, it's a metaphor, Peter. It's a metaphor for all of us. <laughs> It's a good movie. I think we can all agree on it's that. It's a great movie. Yeah. Ben, Ben, uh, is Inside Out the best Pixar movie? Solve this. Uh, <laughs> man, I, I'm very partial to the first Toy Story, but I, I think it's it's definitely in the top three. Um, I, I'm just, I'm really hooked up, and I'm sorry to drag this out, Peter, but uh, I have to ask you to defend your comment about how it looking cartoonish. We're talking about animated movies here. What are you talking about? Uh, Peter, oh no! This is maybe one of your worst takes in a long time. I have to say. Oh my god! I don't know. I don't see this as a bad take. I remember when this movie came out. A lot of people did not like this movie aesthetically. Like they just thought it was like too like cartoony. I'm not, I'm not okay. sure if I'm can, per, like explaining myself as devil's well advocate. I can understand not particular, particularly liking the um, visual style of Inside Out, despite it being somewhat in line with the rest of Pixar's house style, which is very much like that CG animated kind of film, because it doesn't have that some of that more lush quality of some of their other films. But I also think that your argument for more photorealism is a fallacy, just because. Oh. More photorealistic animation isn't necessarily better. Okay, I'm, it's not okay. I, I'm probably making the bad. Ar- my argument has been presented badly here. I don't think I'm pushing for more photorealism. I think the character designs and stuff like that, like it, it's just very cartoony and out of like. It, I want to say, I, I don't know. I'm not. Aside from anger, I'm not sure I love any of the character designs in this movie. What are you talking I, about? I, I mean, the the emotions are like. They're personified so wonderfully, and they they look 
like outstanding. They're like, oh, I just, I'm just. I, I, I think the characters are great. I, I'm talking about the design. I am, I am too. Them. Like, I think that they're, they're great. Like, they're, they're meant to be cartoony because, like, they're, they're, cre- they're abstract concepts. Yeah. Like, you, wait, how, how do you want them presented realistically? I, I think you can't possibly say that the characters are great if you don't like the way they look because that's such an inherent part of, of those characters. Like, like, like you, you, they represent what they. <laughs> What they you are. can look at those characters and you immediately know which emotions they represent. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, you, I think you could do that and with that without them being as cartoony. I don't know. They I, look like I, Muppets. They have, they have Muppet fuzz all over them. It's so good. I regret I bringing this up. I regret <laughs> extending this conversation. Oh, I don't regret it um, because Inside Out is a movie worthy of our conversation and discussion. And Peter, we love you. We adore you. You are our cherished leader. So... For all you at home think we're getting up and Peter, just know that he can fire us all right now if he was actually here. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. I, I, I'm just not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna concede. Er, secede, what am I gonna? I'm gonna, I'm gonna secede podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm ending this here because I, 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 I do not feel as that passionately about this, but I, I, I do feel like I like the aesthetic of the other Pixar movies more. Um, aside from uh, Onward, which is looks like a DreamWorks movie, and I hate so. Okay. <laughs> oh, I guess I'll wrap this up. I, I also watched Lake of Death, a Norwegian horror movie on Shutter. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Brad, what have you been watching? I watched Inside Out, and it's amazing. <laughs> no, uh, I watched um, Impractical. I don't even dislike Inside Out. Inside Out is in my top tier Pixar movies. It's just not number one, guys. Anywho, um, I watched Impractical Jokers, the movie. Um, Impractical Jokers, for those of you that don't know, it's a series on True TV uh, with these four comedians who were they grew up together. They've um, been an improv group called the Tenderloins for a long time, and the premise of the show is uh, they have these competitions. Uh, in public where they like challenge each other to do things that are like awkward or weird or obnoxious and like the the point is to get them to do things that like they otherwise normally wouldn't do in front of people or say to people Uh, and it's it's really really funny as an improv group I don't think that they're very good because they're not great when it comes to being on stage and being actual comedians but when it comes to doing this show and the way they riff off of each other um, and make each other do these crazy, um, embarrassing, inappropriate things is really funny. And so I was interested to see what they did on a larger scale with the movie. Um, and all the stuff that is like the show is great when they're doing their normal shtick of these challenges. And this time it, they're doing it across uh, the country. Normally they hop around to different locations like New York. Um, and uh, I think they've done some in L.A. as well. And they've gone some other places. Um, but this one, they have this weird premise where for some reason they got Paula Abdul involved. And there's this thing where there's like um, this scar from their past where they like ruined a, a Paula Abdul concert. But then when they're older, they find out that she's a big fan of theirs and she invites them to come to this party. But they only have three tickets. And so they the, the setup is like, oh, they're doing their usual competitions to figure out who gets to go to the party. And it takes up way too much runtime. It takes like... 20 25 minutes to actually get that through all this setup to them actually doing what i want to see the impractical jokers do thankfully the impractical joker stuff is funny enough that i still uh enjoyed it but the what they use to create this stupid narrative to make it you know into something that they didn't need to is just really frustrating 
is like my problem when you have like movies like this, like it, it doesn't feel like it's actually bigger or like it, it, des- it deserving of like a big screen movie. Yeah, they definitely do some bigger things like high, big, bigger budget things that wouldn't have been on the show much, much in the same way that like uh, the Jackass movies had some bigger stunts that they otherwise couldn't have done on television. Okay. Uh, so you would you would recommend this? Movie? If you're an Impractical Jokers fan, I'm sure you will you will enjoy it. Um, but like, if you're not used to you know their shtick on the show, you might get annoyed by you know their the stuff that is kind of lame surrounding the game the the actual show stuff that's in the movie. But I mean, you would agree that the character designs in Impractical Jokers is better than Inside Out, right? I mean, no, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what what else have you watched? Um, I also Brad? I also watched uh, a new uh, limited documentary series that will be on Netflix next week called High Score. Uh, it's a six part series that takes a look at the golden age of video games, uh, going from the the spawn of um, arcades and Atari in the nineteen eighties up through uh, consoles like Nintendo and Sega and Super Nintendo um, into the mid nineteen nineties, uh, and this is. Um, a really slickly produced documentary series. Um, it's not just the you know typical talking heads and newsreel footage. There's definitely some of that, but um, the the art direction that they have here is great because they use these great um, pixelated video game style interstitials to make the talking heads more interesting by having these like animated reenactments. Um, and the the way it vacillates between um, video game history, some of which is, you know, fairly, has been fairly well covered, like the the war between Sega and Nintendo and uh, the, the downfall of Atari, uh, largely, you know, thanks to that terrible E.T. game. Um, and just like certain things like that are well covered territory. But the anecdotes that are there and the people that they talk to make it um, a little bit more interesting than I, I think I've ever seen in, in video game documentaries before. And it, it feels comprehensive um, without covering everything because along with the typical video game stuff it like dives into some lesser known uh details about video game history like uh nintendo's game counselors who were hired to be on hotlines to help people get through hard parts of games and the creation of nintendo power and also it also talks to uh some like pioneers of video game history who have kind of been forgotten thanks to larger players taking the spotlight like the man who actually invented the cartridge based video game system before Atari adopted it. Um, and then it talks to players who were part of the first like video game championships around the world um, and how it, you know, kind of changed their lives and how some of them went on to actually work at video game companies. And it's just, it's just really great, all encompassing, uh, extremely entertaining uh, documentary series. And uh, yeah, that'll be on Netflix uh, starting on August 19th. How does this compare to like, you know, uh, what is that movie uh, toy one that Netflix has? Uh, oh, the toys that made us. Yeah. How does that compare to like something? Like that? Um, it is. I feel like it's it's. I think it's a little better produced as far as the production quality goes, um, but it's equally as informative as far as like the details it gets about um, the history of certain games and uh, companies and the and the people that created the games. Okay, uh, and that is on Netflix starting August ninth today, August nineteenth next week. Next week. Okay, what else have you been watching? Uh, I also watched another video game documentary called "Pretending I'm a Superman," the Tony Hawk uh, video game story, and this one is not so great, unfortunately. Um, 
I'm a big fan of the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater video game series. It came out in the late 90s and surged through the early 2000s. Um, and this documentary uh, tries to chronicle the, the origin and the legacy of the video game and how it uh, basically gave skateboarding new life because the sport had essentially died uh, by, by the you know, mid-90s and then saw a huge resurgence after this game became popular. Um, and there are some interesting tidbits in this documentary, but it's, it is such an amateur production and it's so boring and the way it's pieced together, there's no real cohesive narrative to it. And like, it feels like the director didn't really know how to pull the right information or get good stories out of the people who worked on the game because it's all just very basic. And I I almost feel like I learned nothing about this except, you know, hearing the skateboarders talk about, you know, working on it and having them all basically reiterate again and again how important it was to skateboarding. There's, there's, There are some tidbits where, like, it feels like they could have really dug into something that would have been more fascinating, but they only give it, like, a minute of screen time where there are uh, modern skateboarders who got into the sport because of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Um, and there's, like, a young female skateboarder who talks about how important it was for her to see you know, one of the female professional skaters in that video game and kind of inspired her to um, want to be a professional skater. But there's there's no in-depth explanation or discussion about the actual making of the game. It's all very general and surface level stuff. And like, I, I expect a documentary to like dig deep and get really good stories. And this just feels like something that should have been maybe like a short documentary that was really stretched far, far too thin. Okay, and uh, you saw something else this week. Yeah, this past I was week. I was on a documentary uh, run. That's, there's been a lot of them coming out recently, and uh, this one is Happy Happy Joy Joy, the Ren and Stimpy story. Uh, and this one, uh, in case you couldn't guess, is about uh, the creation of the Nickelodeon cartoon Ren and Stimpy um, and how it influenced and changed uh, the face of animation and Saturday morning cartoons and was this really influential thing. Um, but... As we've seen in uh, in recent years, the creator, uh, John uh, Kirkfalusi, or John Kay, as he's more uh, prominently known, um, is a bit of a creep. Um, he had uh, inappropriate relationships with teenage girls when he was at the height of his uh, popularity and essentially kind of used the series as a way to uh, become familiar with them and dated them. And uh, it's a very reprehensible and disgusting thing uh, that he did. And so the series' legacy has been tainted by this. But what the documentary does is it does this great thing where it sets up, you know, John Kirkfalusi as the the person who made the series. And you have all of his collaborators who are complimenting him and calling him a genius. And some people even felt like he could be the next Walt Disney. But then as it goes on, you see the cracks in his character and the, the flaws that he has and how much more difficult of a work uh, working environment that the show was when it didn't really need to be. And even though he's been credited with the reason Ren and Stimpy was so great and why the show could never really exist without him, you see that there are a myriad of people behind the scenes, other artists like Bob Camp um, and Chris Riccardi, who were resp- just as responsible for making the show what it was. And in fact, if it wasn't for them, I don't think Ren and Stimpy would have had the the heart or the reverence that it ended up having because as you see um the the sh- the sheen kind of peel away from the respect that people seem to have for john k you see that 
when he did work after Ren and Stimpy, it wasn't anywhere near as good as Ren and Stimpy actually was because he doesn't have people reeling him in and collaborating with him and making what he thought of better. Um, and so the the documentary just doesn't paint him as a hero at all. If anything, it starts off showing that he, how respected he was and then how quickly he fell and how, you know, in a way he's, like, like I said, you know, it's, it's ruined Ren and Stimpy for some people. But this, you know, it talks to um, one of the, the the girls that he had a relationship with, and she she even says to herself, you know, um, obviously if you hate the show because of this, I don't don't blame you. But at the same time, so many people worked on this, and like you know, it's essentially separating the art from the artist, and that this series you know can stand on its own without having to you know feel the you know, the the scar from, from John Kay essentially. Um, so it's just, it's, it's a really good documentary that looks at all the trials and tribulations that the show had at Nickelodeon and how it influenced a lot of other, uh, programs and, you know, just digs into uh, its origins in a really fascinating way. Very cool. I'm going to have to check that out. Where, where can I see that? Uh, so it, it doesn't seem like it's available everywhere, but starting today it's on VOD and digital purchase. I know it's at Fandango now and Google play, but I don't know about like iTunes and stuff like that. So, uh, just, look around and see we'll see where it is you can find it for rental or purchase okay uh ben what have you been watching i watched a documentary called magnetic that is on netflix um i actually heard jeff canada talk about it on an episode of the slash Filmcast, and it sounded interesting so i added it to my queue and then um on a night when my wife and i were just sort of looking for something um you know to relax our brains and, and veg out and, and watch we decided to check out magnetic which is a documentary that follows a um it basically follows the same film crew that travels to several different parts of the world and uh, they film extreme sports athletes participating in these incredible, you know, feats of, uh, of, of athleticism. There's like skiing down like a, a mountain face in France. That is like a, it, it looks like a 90 degree, you know, but it's not, it's not quite that, but it's very, very impressive. Um, you know, people hiking to the top of insane mountains and skiing all the way down them and surfing some of the biggest waves in the world. Um, it, I mean, it, it's really just, it's it's like there's tons of slow motion shots of people uh, riding huge waves and um, kite surfing. And it's really like a movie where the cinematography and the athleticism on display is, is all there is to it. There's not, that's basically what you're watching. It's like a long series of... Um, like my wife said, it sort of felt like a TV show because the the way that the movie is laid out, I think the film is less than two hours long, but it's it's like episodic because these the film crew travels to different parts of the world and covers different people doing different activities. So there's this one segment where there are these guys who are like mountain biking and that's like the weakest segment of the entire movie by far. Um, but some of the surfing stuff was really incredible. The skiing stuff I, I really enjoyed. There's like amazing drone photography all throughout the whole thing. Um, so yeah, if you're just looking for something, you know, very, um, th that you don't have to engage with too much, but like that, uh, looks cool and, and will like leave your jaw on the floor at like the, uh, the links that some people will go to, to chase that high of that, of, uh, you know, being in like <laughs> a life or death, uh, dangerous moments where they're riding these insane waves that could kill them very, very easily, then uh, I would recommend checking out Magnetic. There's this one segment that I really, really liked um, where uh, it's set in New Zealand and it, it follows this pair of uh, speed flyers who have like they paraglide 
down mountains at just breakneck speeds and they're like skimming across the top of the ground at certain points and um man it's just it's uh they're like seemingly thousands of feet above the ground when they start and they are just flipping and spinning and like tearing down the side of these mountains. And it's, it's very impressive to watch. So um, if you're looking for something like that, it's called magnetic and it's on Netflix. I think it came out in 2018. Uh, I also watched Munich for the first time. This is um, Steven Spielberg's, uh, I think, 2005 movie is when this came out. Wait, I have a question for you. Like, what made you avoid this until now? I mean, not that you're actively avoiding it, but like, I just feel like you would have been someone to run out and see Spielberg. Like, Yeah, I don't know what happened. I was in college when this came out, and maybe I just didn't have any money at the time or something and couldn't afford to see it in theaters. And then just, um, I, I remember reading that it was like a dark, like a serious movie. And I think that that kept me away from it for a little while um, in my college days when it uh, you know came out on DVD immediately and stuff like that. I was I was not in the the time in my life where I was um, <laughs> where I was willing to engage with a, a historical action thriller like that. I guess. Um, and then I just it just like slipped through the cracks, you know. I just never found time to to check it out. And and um, actually, Chris's podcast, the Twenty First Century Spielberg podcast, inspired me to finally uh, check this out. This movie is on HBO Max right now, and um, so I, I listened to like the first half of Chris's pod, uh, podcast where he talked about War of the Worlds, and then he started talking about Munich, and I had to hit pause, and I was like, "Damn it! I guess I really need to watch this movie before I listen to the rest of this episode." So uh, I finally did that. So um, yeah, man, this is uh, it's a good movie. I wouldn't. I don't know if i would call it like top tier spielberg um i think chris was talking about it in, in terms of like he thinks it might be like one of spielberg's masterpieces and i i wish that he was on this episode so if we could have this conversation maybe we'll we'll table this until he uh until he gets here so he can sort of um talk it up a little bit but i i just found it to be um uh, yeah, not quite as engaging as some of his other stuff. I, I feel like it's a movie that uh, that drags a little bit. It makes it makes its same points over and over and over again. And I, I guess that's part of the larger point, which is like to see Eric Bana's character, who plays this um, Israeli spy character. It's, he's he's like thrust into being a spy. He's like an intelligence operative or something who who basically rides a desk in the beginning of the movie and then is is chosen because he's like a boring kind of guy um he's chosen to assassinate the people who were responsible for the um the massacre of the the israeli uh, athletes at the 1972 olympics and so the whole movie is all is basically about like the um the destruction of eric bana's humanity and like you know how the movie how these events and these murders that he is complicit in and has to carry out just like wear down at him and, and turn him into this like shell of his former self. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I just felt like it was a movie that sort of like made its points over and over and over again and, and didn't really um, offer much else beyond that. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, how do you guys feel about Munich, you know, all these years later? Did, am I missing something here? Uh, I, I'm pro Chris here when it comes to this being one of Spielberg's absolute best. I, I think you just don't think the character design is very good. Man. <laughs> I, I remember Munich having, I haven't seen it in many years, so I, I could be remembering this incorrectly, but I remember enjoying it, but I remember having an exceptional tense, like sequence in it that like, I really, that was like amazing. But aside from that, I was not, uh, you know, it's not Spielberg's best. Yeah, what do you guys think, Brad? HD, any thoughts on? I think that, um, in a, albeit in a different way, uh, Spielberg takes an interesting approach to a post nine eleven world uh, with Munich. 
um, and does so in a really raw way that really like taps into his own heritage and maybe some of the anger he feels um, about, you know, not, you know, not just uh, racism, but I guess, you know, bigotry in response to uh, terrorism and things, things like that. I think that there um, it's a really weighty movie. Um, and I, I do agree that it's, it's definitely one of his uh, best modern movies. Uh, Munich is one of the more recent Spielberg films that I haven't seen yet. I missed it as well <laughs> alongside you, Ben. So I also listened to Chris's uh, 21st Century Spielberg podcast and stopped it after War of the Worlds. because, And I was like, oh, yeah, I should watch Munich, but I never got around to it, unlike you. Yeah, I would, I'd be interested to see what you think about it. And I think, Brad, you made some good points there because that that's like the big takeaway from for me from this movie was like how um, – sort of bold it felt in 2005 like you know that close to 9-11 and and definitely like as this country was still in the throes of the the you know the war on terror um how spielberg chose to sort of humanize the terrorist characters a little bit like not he didn't go over the you know as far as to you know give them half of the perspective of the movie or anything it's clearly from one perspective but i think he went out of his way to try to um, muddy the waters a little bit and, and, you know, paint a picture where it's not as clear as like one side is righteous and correct. And the other side is yeah. not. Um, so that, that's the one part of the, that, that's the aspect of the movie that I appreciated yeah. the most. Um, I just wish that, you know, aside from that, there was a little bit more that I engaged with, but um, I don't know. I've heard from, from some people that it actually takes like a couple of viewings of this movie to really like fully <laughs> appreciate it. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll revisit it again in a couple of years and see if I feel differently about it. Um, so yeah, that's Munich and that's on HBO go right now, if you want to check that out. And then finally I watched, uh, Chicago for the first time. Um, this is also on HBO go or HBO max, I should say, sorry. Uh, God, this movie, I hated this movie so much. <laughs> I, I have to just, I'm, I'm not going to beat around the bush with this. Uh, I know that this movie won the Oscar for best picture and that's the only reason that I watched it. Um, I had never seen it. I, I, Really, I think in 2002, when it came out, I was especially averse to musicals and, and um, you know, like stylized stories like this. And that is certainly not the case now. I love stuff like that now. Um, I, I'm, I'm a much more, I would like to think I'm a much more enlightened viewer <laughs> of, of all things now than I was in 2002. Um, so I, I think I, I am glad that I didn't see it then because I think I really, I think I probably would have walked out if I saw it in 2002, but I made it all the way through this movie, which is like not an accomplishment at all. Um, now, <laughs> Congratulations, Ben. Oh, yeah, you yeah, made yeah, it. Please, yeah. Hold your applause. Um, but God, I just, I hated almost everything about this movie. I thought the performances were just, um, I don't know. I, uh, Rob Marshall as a director is, uh, he, God, he is just not my speed. Like this was his first uh, big feature film, I think. I think he had done some TV stuff before then and actually made like some TV movies before then. But um, he's made Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, Into the Woods, Mary Poppins Returns, uh, Memoirs of a Geisha, and Nine. And this this guy is just, uh, he is not, not <laughs> my tempo. Uh, as a director and I just I thought that um, some of the choreography was okay I just I hated the music in it and I know that's not Rob Marshall's fault because it's based on a very popular uh, <laughs> you know stage musical from the 70s but um, I thought the songs just lasted forever I thought one of the big takeaways at the very end was like I, I cannot believe that this movie is called Chicago because 
like if I lived in the city of Chicago, if I was like the mayor of Chicago or whatever, I would be furious that like this is the movie that is associated with my city because like it has almost nothing to do with Chicago. Like it's about violence in the 1930s or, or the jazz age. And uh, that could be anywhere. It could have been in several big cities in America. And it seems like almost random that it's in Chicago. And <laughs> for as bad as this movie was, or as bad as I found it to be, um, yeah, I, I, I just, I couldn't believe how bad it was. And I, I just kept thinking like, this one best picture? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I can't think of, you know, this has got to be like one of the worst best picture wins, one of the worst, uh, you know, Oscar mistakes of this millennium. So uh, I don't know. Is there, tell me please that there's somebody on this episode that loves Chicago and has just been biting their tongue the whole time, because I would really like, honestly, honest to God, love to hear a, a true spirited defense of this movie because um, I just found it indefensible. Yeah, this is physically paining me this entire time, Ben. Like, uh, this was like an assault on me hearing you say all of this. I, I really do love Chicago. I'm 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 a, I'm a Jacob. I like Chicago too. Um, I I will what? say that I think that the the way it incorporates the musical side of of the the musical um, feels a bit lazy because all it is is just like essentially an aside where it cuts away from the the cinematic part of the story to like musical performances on stage. But I think that it's very stylish and done so in a way that is, you know, meant to be exaggerated and meant to be this kind of, you know, fast talking 1930s kind of thing. And I think the performances are, are really good. I think John C. Riley in particular is outstanding in this movie. Uh, both Catherine Data Jones and Renee Zellweger are fantastic. The, the musical sequence where, Richard Gere has Renee Zellweger sitting on his knee like a ventriloquist dummy is fantastic. Um, I think there's a lot of great things in this movie. I will agree with you that I do not think it deserved Best Picture. Uh, hands down, I think that year it should have gone to Gangs of New York, without a doubt. Um, yeah. But but I still really like this movie a lot. Yeah, I don't really understand your vitriol for this movie, uh, Ben, because <laughs> well, I don't love Chicago. I liked it. I watched it a couple times when I was a kid when it, when it came out because I was going through my musical phase. And um, I think it's a lot of its strength is due to the um, original Bob Fosse musical. And I don't know how you don't feel anything this, like watching the cell block tango scene. Like, that's such a great yeah, scene. Yeah. That, that's the one scene that I liked, I think. That's the one where they talk about, like, how they killed all the men in their lives yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. That's the one moment where I was like, okay, I'm on board with this. And then like the movie just fell back apart for me after that. See, I grew up hating musicals. And I think the reason why I grew up hating musicals is because for many of them, it feels like we're going to stop the story and have a song. And like, like it kind of like puts a break on the momentum. And one, one other reason I think I hated musicals growing up is a lot of them, felt so uncinematic and stagey when it got to the musical part, um, or at least the ones I was watching. Uh, obviously, since then, I've gone back and seen that that's not the case with all the musicals of, uh, you know, the, the previous errors. Um, but the like, I really it goes it goes to what Brad was saying about Chicago, like when, when it goes into the musical numbers and it really just feels like it was shot on a stage. It just feels so lazy and like, I don't know, I just want to get to the next story beat. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, like just it, it feels like it's hold, holding the story back for at least from what I remember. Um, I've grown into loving musicals and appreciating even stage musicals. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I, I still don't like it when like something I feel like if you're going to be a movie, 
you deserve to be cinematic. No? Or, or yeah. you have a, a responsibility yeah. to be cinematic. Yeah. yeah, responsibility, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think and the problem is I, I think the the idea of this mu- of this musical is really compelling to me on paper. I just thought the execution of this movie was disastrous. But I don't know, maybe if I saw it on stage or something, I would like it a lot more. Um, I just, yeah, I, 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 guess, I guess a big part of it too is like not liking the music, just not having it connect with you is, is a big problem when the entire movie is full of songs that you don't really care about. Um, so I, oh, and I also will say that I, I was unfair toward uh, Renee Zellweger earlier because I think she is actually pretty good in this movie. It might be like one of the, the best performances that I've seen her. I've not seen all of her movies, but um, I was like, oh, I normally am just sort of like, meh on her and i was like oh she was actually good in this but um i think she was the only performer that stood out to me so anyway that's uh chicago you can check it out and, and weigh in on either side of the great chicago battle of 2020 uh <laughs> if you want to watch that on hbo max uh ben i have one quick question for you yeah if you could blink one person out of existence between uh tom hooper and rob marshall who would you pick oh no god jacob why have you done this to me this is uh this is a an impossible this is a sophie's choice moment um oh god i as much as it pains me to say it i think rob marshall (laughs) i think i would rather have tom hooper doing his weird ass shit in the world uh than rob marshall whose movies i just find to be like so bland for the most part at least tom hooper i can like sort of have fun hating his stuff and then his stylistic choices whereas rob marshall i feel like is too boring to even like be able to generate that much energy to hate yeah i i think rob marshall has to go just because he did nine and somehow made fellini boring (laughs) (laughs) okay then so uh that does it for ben ht what have you been watching Uh, i've only watched one thing this week and that is Host, the Shutter original directed by Rob Savage, which uh, both Chris and Jacob have talked about. It's the uh, independent low-budget movie that was uh, the, the first movie or the one of the few movies that has actually been filmed during COVID and done uh, at a social distance. And it's a really compact, um, effective horror film. It's one of my, I think my one of my favorite screen life films that I've seen. Um, and I was really impressed by not only the, the, um, the effective jump scares, which had me quite, I mean, I'm a very, I'm a big scaredy cat, so I'm easy to scare, but still like I, I was very impressed by them and like they were really well done, but, um, just by the, um, how they were able to pull off this concept of uh, a seance that's performed over Zoom, which sounds kind of like a gimmicky premise, but is um, yeah really effective, uh, really chilling and creepy and, and very spooky. And uh, it made me very scared for any potential seances over Zoom that I might be participating in. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I I really like this movie, um, and it's only fifty two minutes, fifty six minutes long, uh, under an hour, and I was amazed by that. I will say, I did think it started off a little slow, despite its really short runtime. But I think it was in a, a a good way of building the characters and making you feel like you were part of this group of friends who were doing, who were on a Zoom call and just chatting. So um, it it still worked for me, despite I think it being kind of a little slow at the beginning. But uh, what a great compact little horror movie okay let's move on to what we've been eating brad what kind of junk have you been eating this week 
Just one thing this week. Um, so my my girlfriend is uh, originally from Zimbabwe, um, even though she's li- she lived in Utah for about a decade before she moved here with me uh, in the Midwest. And her parents recently came into the country because uh, her um, brother was getting married and they brought some stuff uh, from Zimbabwe um, for all her and all of her siblings. And one of them was uh, this snack that is one of her favorite snacks uh, from the country. And it's they're called corn curls uh, with with a K. Um, and the band corn is not involved in any way, which I was kind of disappointed <laughs> to, to hear. Um, but they're basically so they're, they're a lot like um, like puff corn, but instead of tasting like buttered popcorn uh, or like buttered buttered Cheetos, the seasoning, the flavor on them is actually more like Funyuns. Um, so it's, it's basically like a puffy Cheeto, but with a buttery Funyun seasoning. And they are really, really good. Um, and interestingly enough, they actually they get more flavorful as as you continue um, to, to have them. So the, the flavor get, gets stronger. Um, but yeah, they are they're, they're very, very good. Um, and apparently there are some other uh, Zimbabwe things that I think that they, they have that they're going to give us at some point. But yeah, corn curls. They're from Zimbabwe. They're delicious. Okay, let's move on to what we've been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing? This is less about what I've been playing, more about what I may play in the future. Uh, interestingly, after HT last week talked about how she may be doing a Call of Cthulhu RPG game with some of her friends, I was doing my week, my weekly trip to my comic and gaming store, and the new edition of Harlem Unbound was out. This is a um, a, a campaign setting for Call of Cthulhu. You idea what that means is that Call of Cthulhu is essentially set up to be a game you play, you role play in 1920s New England, more or less. And there are ways to change that if you wanted to, but it offers a lot of like background on the on that setting, how to like incorporate it into your world and your game. And there are various other uh, campaign settings out there, like there are books about how to run Call of Cthulhu in medieval Europe, uh, uh, during the French Revolution, in, in the Wild West. And all I offer, you know, a combination of historical information about the setting, the kind of jobs, careers, items, you know, weapons people would find. Uh, so you can sort of create a realistic world, but also, you know, tweaked rules for, you know, what kind of monsters could show up, what kind of creatures or ancient evils. And uh, Harlem Unbound is a really interesting book because it is uh, it is Harlem in the 1920s, you know, the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, it's written by Chris Spivey, and it's essentially intended to be – it's trying to reconcile, you know, some of the inherent racism of Lovecraft uh, with a setting uh, – with, with a, you know, very important black setting. And Spivey himself is a, a black creator, and – this book is really, really cool. It's full of really great information about, you know, Harlem in, in the 1920s. Uh, if you ever want to run a game that's set there about w- what it was like, the tone it has lots of story hooks and ideas. And perhaps most interestingly for someone like me, uh, Spivey's written an entire section about uh, how to incorporate or properly role play racism in tabletop games. This entire chapter, like maybe a very large chunk of the book that says like, if you choose not to ignore the stuff in your game, here's how you can do it responsibly. Uh, which I'm not so sure when I'll be running a Call of Cthulhu game set in 1920s Harlem. Uh, but this section is proving already very interesting. And uh, I'm, and I'm as someone who's trying to, you know, be better about a lot of things in my life. Uh, that actually extends to how I run tabletop RPGs. So it's a uh, Harlem Unbound second edition is currently available for purchase. Either it's a physical hardcover or it's a PDF. Okay, that does it for today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more Volver work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. You can send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please head on over to iTunes and give us a rating, give us a review. Tell your friends, spread the word, 
and we'll see you on Monday. Peter, can you hear me? Yeah, Ben has to go. He like he he's like he needs to peace out. So like, I don't think we have time for this. Ben has today. to leave in approximately fifty five minutes, so it will be fine. Um, because I've opened up a grand chewing book of insult, offense, and affrontery. Sharper toast, proper sharper torts, repost, cost equips, imply put downs by Lewis A. Safian to page two three two. Bamboozlers, <clears throat> bamboozlers. Hey, Peter, at a dinner party, you're the guy who's sure to eat all the celery. The, um, I don't even like celery. I don't Peter, even... at a dinner party, you're the guy who's sure to eat all the celery. It's okay, I'm I'm really cel- confused here because celery. isn't that get it? No, I don't get at it. At a dinner party, Peter is the guy who's sure to eat all the celery. But no one wants the celery. Like they go for the other appetizers. It's like <laughs> at a dinner party, Peter's a guy who's sure to eat all the celery. Peter, normally I tell you just to move on. I have to admit, I don't understand this one yeah, either. He's bamboozled, right? So he's being bamboozled. So he takes whatever people sell. Celery, right? Am I wrong? Or is it? I don't know. Maybe. How do you say celery a form of bamboo? Is it, is it trying to draw a comparison from that? I don't know. I don't At a dinner party, Peter's a guy who's sure to eat all the celery. Is it that I go to a party and I eat all the thing like the free food, so I'm like bamboozling them out of if the free celery that costs them five cents? That I've ever heard. At a dinner party, Peter's a guy who sure eat all, all right. the celery. <laughs> Maybe this okay, will take we, the we can move on, Jacob. Uh, ben, Ben, he can convince you that you're going places when he's really taking you. Okay, yeah, see that one makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, I like that one. <laughs> HT, uh, she's a gal that's really going far, always one step ahead of her creditors. Yeah, I'm glad of that. <laughs> you, you don't want them to catch you, HT. Yeah, exactly. Well, Brad, he's a real success story. He started out with $1,000. Now he owes $100,000. Uh, that, that's the fucking truth. <laughs> <laughs> Student loans, man, they get you. Uh, I guess that's it. That's the end. Oh, do we you don't want, have any more? Do you want more, Peter? I, I, no, I, no, no, no. I'm reopening the book. I closed it. I oh, no, the page, oh, no, no, page 125, no. idlers. Um, Peter, he's a two-dimensional guy. He has longitude and lassitude. Okay. Uh, ben, the only thing he grows in his garden is tired. <laughs> yep. <laughs> HT, she heard that hard work never killed anybody, but she's not taking no chances on being its first victim. Ah. Mm. And Brad, he stopped drinking coffee in the morning because it keeps him awake the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I've closed the book again, Peter. Shall I reopen it? No, no. Okay. Bye, bye everybody. Have a good weekend.